0: This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria.
1: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Uh, good morning from California, Heidi. Good
2: morning, Mom. From New York. It's two thirty here.
1: Uh-huh. And you're in your office, right?
2: I am. I'm on my office. I'm in my office on West 72nd. And it's a nice fall day today. And uh Yeah, and and it's weird talking about the weather, which I probably shouldn't, because you know it's it's difficult when we've had a loss because I felt like when Scott died that every day should be a torrential downpour. And when it wasn't <laughs> When it wasn't mom, it was an assault to me. How dare it be sunny? How dare it be beautiful? How dare it be an incredible day? I wanted the way I felt to be reflected in the weather.
1: Absolutely, I like that. That's true. Well, um, we've had a little storm, which is having Aunt Belle die, and uh, I wanted to uh, mention that because we're going to talk about it a little bit today, right?
2: Absolutely. And for those of you that are wondering why we just brought it up so casually, is because we have talked about it on our last two shows that we've pre-recorded. My aunt, who was My mom's first cousin and my aunt, Bao, was someone that was really close to me. She was an amazing person. She was creative and fun, and she beat to her own drum. And her son and my brother died together in a car accident in 1983 when they were both 17 years old. And, you know, I've always – I said when I found out she died on Sunday, she died after a battle with cancer. It was so bittersweet to me because I sat there and cried and I not only cried because I'm going to miss her, but I cried because I felt so moved that she was with my brother Scott and my cousin Matthew again she waited many, many years to finally be with them again, and I honestly believe she is.
1: Well, you know, um, uh, we always used to, I always used to kid with Belle and say, uh, you know, because right after you have uh, somebody die, you're doing this yearning and searching. Uh, everywhere you go, you look for them. And I used to kid uh, with her about if you uh, see the boys, send them home. So we used to kid around uh, about that. So, but she sent me a little sign the other day, Heidi. Really strange. We, we had a little joke about something called jojoba beans because they have a special oil and uh, a friend of ours grew them and we always laughed about it because he was trying to grow these beans and convinced us that this oil he was going to make millions of dollars from the oil and so i went to get a massage the day she died the day after she actually may have been the same day in the evening i went to get a massage and and i got a massage therapist i'd never had before very serendipitously, and I said to the, the woman, said, well, what kind of oil do you like? And I said, oh, I don't know, whatever. And she said, well, we have some new oil here. It's called jojoba bean oil. <laughs> <That> <laughs> I laughed so hard phenomenal. because uh, who ever heard of having a massage with a jojoba bean? <laughs> Not me.
2: I, I've honestly never heard of that before. That is really bizarre. And for those of you that believe in signs, it's a beautiful thing. And if you don't believe in them, that's okay, too. I always say if it works and if it brings you comfort, then I, I'm, I lean into it. Absolutely. So I absolutely love that that was the oil. What a beautiful thing. That's a great story, actually. <laughs> and it's
1: a, it was a great laugh, and I thought yeah. if anybody's going to send you a laugh, it would be Bell. Totally.
2: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so we've got a great show today with Stan Goldberg, and it's great to have him on because he's published seven books and written numerous articles and delivered more than 100 lectures and workshops. Throughout the U.S., Latin America, Canada, Asia, on topics of stuttering, uh, changes in learning difference, fly fishing, and end of life issues. I love the fact that he does uh, so many, wow. so many things, and he's got a wonderful book out. I love. It's called "Leaning Into Sharp Points: Practical Guide and Nurturing Support for Caregivers," and it is. Just, uh, I will tell you if you're a caregiver. I've got a friend, Jim Brown, who's taking care of his wife who had a stroke. And I'm, soon as we finish the show, I'm going to wrap this book right up and and send it off to Jim to read because it's great. And welcome to the show today, Stan. He, I'm excited because he's sitting here in the studio with me today, which is a change.
3: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the, the invite.
1: Yeah, it's really fun, and he's one of our authors too. And by the way, I'm on the back of this book because I I, uh, I know. <laughs> I gave him an endorsement because it it is a great book. Well, Stan, how did you get in the field of uh, grief and loss and recovery and helping caregivers and all that?
3: Well, when I was uh, 57, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I was still teaching full-time at the university.
1: And that's San Francisco State. San
3: Francisco State. And um, I tried to make sense of what my life had been and what it might become. Uh, I had a a fairly aggressive form of prostate cancer, and I did what most people do when they have something seriously wrong with them is I pretended it didn't exist, Mm. and I I literally laid in bed for three months after the surgery and watched reruns of movies. And uh, someone, a good friend of ours, was having a party, and she said, you know, please come. I know that you don't want to be around people right now, but there's someone here you have to meet. I said fine. And I went there, and it was a gentleman who was 82, whose partner was had just been admitted into the hospice wing um, in in San Francisco. Uh, I forgot the name of the indigent care facility.
1: Kent, San Francisco General or
3: no um, Laguna uh, Honda. Oh, uh-huh. and, uh huh. And the reason he asked me to come is because I was a speech pathologist, and his his partner had a stroke, so he wanted to find out how he and the staff could communicate with him. And I was very reluctant to go because I had placed students at Laguna Honda and it just was just too depressing for me. Uh, But I went anyway and um, I saw the most amazing thing, which were people who were dressed in street clothes going from bed to bed in the ward. And there just was this, the only I can describe it as an angelic look on their faces. And I said, who are these people? And I was told these are volunteers. And I said, so these are people that are coming here to be with people they know are dying, and they're going to establish a relationship with them? And they said, of course. And that hooked me. Um, I knew, I didn't know what these people were feeling, but whatever the look was on their face, I knew I wanted to experience that. And that's how I got into hospice.
1: Wow. And had you written books before that?
3: Yeah. Um, I wrote books in the area of speech-language pathology and, and clinical skills for for therapists. Mm-hmm. but This was just the beginning of it. And so I was trained, and the first assignment was at uh, the Zen uh, Project Guest House. And um, the first patient I had was someone I eventually stayed with for 22 hours straight because it was Thanksgiving. And Uh and I left there, and I knew that I was a different person than when I started. And that's when I just started writing stories about people that I cared for.
1: And some wonderful stories. And what's your other book with the stories in it?
3: It's called Lessons for Learning right. Stories right. of Forgiveness, Gratitude, and Courage at the End of Life.
1: Right. And you'll be able to go, go to his site and take a look at those. Well, I want to talk to you because, um, as we said up front about my cousin Beldine. Now, I, I want, you know, it was tough because I'm going to tell you something, Stan. She didn't want to die mm-hmm. all the way. I mean, till the day, you know. But does
2: anybody want to die? I mean, I don't know.
3: Yes. Some people do. Some pe- there's, I, I've been with, with people in the last eight years that have covered the full continuum. Those who are ready, those who will never be ready, and those who are in the process of getting ready. So the answer, um, Heidi, is yes. There are some people who feel they're ready to die. And, and being with them at their time of death is very different than being with someone who isn't ready.
1: Who is, who is fighting it. It was tough, it was tough for her kids. And one of the things that occurred to me was, her kids were ready for her to die and she wasn't, and it made it difficult because they didn't meet her where she was, you know.
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, that happens quite a few times. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for that is, those who are caring for someone who is ill, don't understand they're living in a very different world. It's almost as if the illness that one has and the expectations form a vessel that you pour your current life into. So that applies both for the person who is ill and the person caring for them. And often that just leads to these conflicts, such as a caregiver saying, you know, my life has been devoted to this person. It's time for me to get on with it. And the person who's dying who says, but I'm not ready to leave.
1: Exactly. You know, it reminded me, I was telling uh, my husband, I said, it reminded me when I was pregnant with our youngest daughter, Heather, my mother flew out from Utah and I didn't have the baby, you know, and everybody's sitting around. And my cousin, I talked to her and she said, all these people are visiting me. Am I going to die? Do they think I'm going to die? You know, her son flew in and all these people coming because the hospice people, they finally brought in hospice just because she had pain. She didn't want to bring hospice in because hospice came in the family. You know, that signaled that their loved one was going to die. And she (laughs) she wasn't ready to to deal with that. And she was up. You know, uh, forcing herself to get up and be around and all that. But so, Stan. Now, how do her kids deal with it now that she has died, with that conflict uh, that they had? What would you say to people who are relieved that they died and are in this conflict that she didn't want to die? And do you have any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, Yeah. Um, I think I think a lot of people carrying around tremendous amount of guilt because as they were caring for someone they loved. They had thoughts that people said are, are wrong or, or, or aren't correct. Uh, I don't know any person that I've counseled who is a caregiver who hasn't had some thoughts they wouldn't share with anybody. And I think uh, as long as caregivers believe that these are unnatural things, then they're going to harbor guilt for their entire lives. Um, it is very natural for a caregiver to, to think, my God, I wish this loved one would die already. And and sometimes the wish is related to the pain the person, is, the, the loved one is feeling. Other times that someone has given their whole life to caring for someone and they're, they're ready to get on. So the first thing I think is just, you know, to acknowledge that these are very natural feelings. You know, you cannot give up your life for a loved one and not have negative consequences to yourself. And I think people need to understand that. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I think for some people uh, where it's been a long-term illness and, and they've really deteriorated maybe with Alzheimer's or whatever. I know my dad had had a stroke and my mother, he would keep saying, who are you? And that kind of thing. After they die the caregiver is often surprised how they, they've spent their life doing They don't have a job anymore in, in essence. You know?
3: I, I've noticed that not only with caregiving, but before I, I started becoming involved in the hospice movement, I dealt with disabled kids where parents spent their whole life working with a, you know, taking care of a child. When the child died, um, they didn't have an identity anymore. And I think the same thing happens with caregiving. Um, you know, the identity that you develop is related to what you do, part of that. Mm-hmm. And if I'm caregiving 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, I'm going to assume many of those characteristics. And, you know, the, if, when that role is over, and it's usually a very quick change in role, I'm lost. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. You know, how am I going to spend my time? So I, I think issues of identity are really crucial in caregiving.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's your thought about? Okay, so I'm hearing you. I'm saying right, he's right. Okay, what do I do
3: as a caregiver or as the
1: person who's lost the? They're gone, and they're trying to get their identity. Where do we start? I mean, is there any?
3: I think that it's it's part of a larger issue of dealing with loss. You know, whether that loss is a loved one or a job or uh, an ability. What I found is that quite often when we look at losses, what we focus on is replacing the person or the ability or the activity that we can't do anymore. And what I've seen is many people spend a lifetime trying to find that and they can't. Uh, What what I've learned, I think what what works for me and works with many of the people that, that I've counseled, is instead of looking to replace the person that was lost, you initially try to find mm, like out that. what was the emotion or emotions that person engendered in you. Mm, I like that. And that's what you look for. When I no longer, I mean, one of the things that I loved most in life was fly fishing in wilderness areas by myself. And after I developed the, the cancer and uh, a sleep uh, disorder, I couldn't do that anymore. And I thought a significant part of my life was over. What I found was that it wasn't that I missed fly fishing in a stream in Wyoming. What I missed was the serenity that it created in me. And that's what I started to look for. So for me, it ended up learning to to play and craft Native American flutes and Japanese bamboo flutes. But I've had clients who done the same thing where they lost a wife And they were able to identify what Uh emotions that wife created in them. And they became, you know, the one guy became a master cabinet maker. Uh And he, because he was looking for the generation of the emotion rather than a specific person.
1: Wow. Heidi, isn't, this is great ideas, isn't it? I love it. I love it. Fabulous. Yeah. That finding what it is that they engendered into you, that's, that's powerful because, you know, people are so lost. I mean, they mm-hmm. just don't know, you know. Uh, but I, I love that idea of finding what you've lost. Mm-hmm. What about guilt? What do, you, what do you do with guilt? If you have some guilt about something you didn't do or, you know, I could say with Scott way, way back, um, uh, I didn't let him take my car and his cousin drove. And, you know, what if I'd let him take my car? The what ifs? The what ifs?
3: Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. This was a true story. This happened to me many years ago. I was in my 40s, and I was having some difficulty interacting with my wife and my kids and everything. And I went up to a place called the Shasta Buddhist Abbey, which is on the base of Mount Shasta. And the abbot said, you know, if there's anybody here that wants counseling, we have priests who can counsel. So I said, yeah, of course, I'll do that. And so the next day, I I go into a room, and here's a, a priest Who's half my age? Who's never had a family? I doubt if he understands what raising kids is all about, and I don't even think he's learned to shave yet. And, and I'm <laughs> na- and I'm now going to unload my soul to him. Right. And so, you know, I started doing it reluctantly, and very quickly I forgot about that, and I just, you know, talked about everything. And so, after about thirty minutes, I'm looking to him for advice, and he just sat there, and he he said the words that have still stayed with me for four, almost 25 years. And he said, "Stan, we do the best we can given the circumstances of our lives." Right. And he left. <laughs> and and I thought about that and you know, if if you if you really believe that, okay. if you really believe that circumstances are involved in many of the decisions, then guilt doesn't become something that dominates your life. At least it hasn't dominated my life. Right. So, you know, when, when I have patients and, and caregivers tell me how terrible they feel they didn't do otherwise, I try to have them think about, well, what was going on in your life, you know, when you chose that?
1: Right. Okay, now I've got one last one I've got to ask you. And I, but then I want to also do a quickie on uh, why it, on sharp points. But, okay, here's another one. What if I am angry because I, uh, one of my relatives is angry at her husband who died because she felt like he owed her an apology and she never got it?
3: I think one of the biggest problems that I see in interactions, whether it's between someone who's ill or not, or just friends, is that we all, we, we tend to evaluate people we know based on our expectations of how they should act. Right. And as long as I keep trying to impose my values on other people, nobody will (laughs) ever please me. (laughs) And so I I think that that's, you know, for me, that's where I begin. And then when someone does something that I find um, difficult or painful or even reprehensible, instead of looking at that as a reflection on something I did wrong, I look at on, I look at them as this is a problem they have. It's, it's a problem. It's an unne- unmet need that they have that they're going to need to be fulfilled. And when I was taking care of my hospice patients, uh, I practiced that because, you know, people who are, a lot of people who are dying are very angry.
1: Right. And unappreciative.
3: <laughs> yeah, especially unappreciative. And, and I'm there to, you know, for, for them to to throw things right. on, but I never took it personally because I understood it came from, from needs that they had. Right. right.
1: Well, talk about why you uh, called your book Leaning into Sharp Points. I love that.
3: There's a Tibetan saying that to get over the things in our life that cause us the greatest pain and we fear the most, lean into them
1: mm. rather than
3: running away. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that to be very helpful uh, in my hospice practice and, and my own life, is that as long as I'm running away from something, uh, it will stay there as long as I run. Mm-hmm. And if I want to get over it, I need to start examining it Absolutely. Well,
1: thank you so much for being on the show today, Stan. And his book is Leaning into Sharp Points, Practical Guide and Nurturing Support for Caregivers. And Stan, tell us where we can find you on the net and all that kind of stuff.
3: I have a website and it's stan goldberg writer, dot com. And on that site, I have, I think now it's maybe about 90 articles that cover areas of end-of-life, aging, grief and recovery, and illness. So they can you know, go to the site, and all that. And so all that is free. And the books I've published uh, can be purchased through Amazon. All right,
1: and you can find him on opentohope.com, too. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Stan. It's been my
3: pleasure.
2: Thanks, Stan, and thank you for everything you're, welcome. you're doing. You're doing so, so many things. Please go to Stan's website if you want to find out more about all the amazing things he's doing and all the lectures he's giving and workshops and books, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you so much, Stan, for helping people find hope after loss.
3: You're very welcome.
1: Well, Heidi, I'm thinking of Stan's uh, leaning on to sharp points, and I know we say ask people to, if they've lost hope to lean on our hope until they find their own. And I don't know, maybe we cushion some of those sharp points. I'm not sure. i got to figure out how this all works together. Anyway... Thanks a lot for listening to Open to Hope and please tune in again next week.
0: You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.